The following sermon is from Faith Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Join us on Sundays for our 8.15 and 11 a.m. worship services. For more information, visit us online at faith-pca.org. If you have a copy of God's Word, turn with me to the front of your Bible, Genesis chapter 33. Genesis chapter 33. We're continuing our study this morning through uh, our series, The Gospel in the Life of Jacob. There's an old short story by Ernest Hemingway, the capital of the world. And in this short story, it, it takes place in Madrid, and the story centers around Paco, who is a young man, and he has a desire to become a matador. And he eventually finds himself estranged from his father, so much so that Paco runs as far away as he possibly can. The father sets out to find him month after month of looking for him. He is unsuccessful in trying to find his son. And so finally, in one last effort, he decides to put an ad, the father does, decides to put an ad in the Madrid newspaper. And the ad reads like this, Dear Paco, Meet me in front of Hotel Montana on Tuesday at 4 p.m. All is forgiven. Love your father. And on Tuesday at 4 p.m., 800 Pacos showed up longing for forgiveness, longing for the love of their fathers. And I think we can all relate to that story, can't we? Can you relate to that? All of us, no matter who we are this morning, reconciliation and forgiveness is something that touches every single one of us. All of us are in relationships where we either need to forgive or be forgiven. Jacob finds himself desperately in need of forgiveness. The last time we saw Esau, he was so angry at his brother that he wanted to kill him for stealing his birthright. Well, here we are, 20 years later, and the moment of truth has arrived, and Esau and Jacob find themselves face-to-face. So let's look at our story this morning and let's see what happens. Follow along with me. This is God's Word. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. And so he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front and then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to him and embraced him, and fell on his neck, and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, 
He said, who are these with you? And Jacob said, the children whom God has graciously given your servant. And then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. And Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. And Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? And Jacob answered to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And Jacob said, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that, I, that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. And then Esau said, let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are frail, and that nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are divided, or if they have driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass ahead of my servants, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord and seer. And so Esau said, let me, leave with some, let me leave you with some people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. And so Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way to Paddan Aram. And he camped before the city, and from the sons of Hamer, Shechem's father, he, brought for, he, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. That is God's word. Let me pray. And ask God one more time to help us with his word. Father, we do pray as we've read your word that you would come and minister to us through your spirit. I cannot do that. Only you can do that. And so come, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. The last time we left off, Jacob was wrestling with uh, God. And if you remember, God touched his hip, dislocated his hip, and the scene ends with Jacob walking away with a limp. A limp that is caused by God so that Jacob might be more dependent than ever and hold more tightly than ever to God. And we said this last week, that's what we want to be as a church. We want to be a church of Jacob's limping our way through life, clinging on to God with everything that we've got. And so the question this morning then is, what does that mean? What exactly does it look like to limp our way through life? What are the characteristics of someone who walks with a limp? I cannot cover this exhaustively, of course, but let's just look at our passage this morning. It shows us that people that walk with a limp are people, number one, that are changing, two, reconciling, and three, still struggling. One changing, 
two, reconciling, and three, still struggling. That's where we're headed. Let's look at our first heading. People who walk with a limp are changing. Okay, so think about the connection, and it's meant to be connected. You, the, the picture is Jacob has been fighting all night with God, and he's limping away. You see that at the end of 32, and he's exhausted, and he can't even catch his breath. His eyes lift, and there is his brother Esau. You see that in verse 1. Esau with 400 men behind him. But this is a different Jacob. Uh, This Jacob is limping as he meets his brother. He has encountered and wrestled with God, and as a result, uh, we see significant change in his life. We see that the twister, Jacob, has indeed been untwisted in a big way. For example, he has a different courage. Chapter 32, verse 18 you might have remembered this. When he, when he finds out that Esau's coming with 400 men, do you remember where Jacob went? <laughs> he went to the back of the line. And he sent his wife and children ahead of him because he was so afraid and distressed. Look at verses 1 through 3. He divides his family up. And now where does Jacob go? He goes to the front of the line. Verse 3, he himself went on before them. This Jacob, who had spent his entire life running from everyone, from Esau, from Isaac, and from Laban, now has a new courage, and he's willing to meet his brother head on. And we learned that walking with the limp means that when you sin against another person, you courageously, and it does take courage, doesn't it? Move towards the person that you have hurt in repentance in order to restore the relationship with them. And you move towards them even though it's extremely uncomfortable. And so Jacob is changed, and we see a change in how he acts. But we also see a change in Jacob's posture. He encounters Esau, and he immediately begins to try to repair the relationship by making things right. Look again at verse 3. Bowing himself to the ground seven times as he comes near his brother. And there's irony, isn't there? There's a reversal here, because if you remember in chapter 27, 29, Jacob is told that he will be lord over his brothers. He is told that his mother's sons would bow down to him. But that's not what we see here. That's what we expect because that's what we've been told. But Jacob is the one that's bowing down. We see the complete opposite. He's bowing down and that was the way you showed honor and respect to your Lord. And over and over he calls Esau his Lord. And in verse 5, he even says to Esau, I am your servant. And so what is Jacob doing here? You know what Jacob is doing? He's repenting. Jacob is repenting. He's trying to make things right. And we see the indication 7 is a completeness in the Bible. And so Jacob is coming in complete humility to Esau. 
Esau, I was wrong. I stole the blessing. You were the firstborn. I took what was supposed to be yours. And so we see here humility and vulnerability. And think about this in Jacob. I mean, when you think about bowing before someone and the humility that takes and the vulnerability uh, that goes on inside of you. And we see him doing that seven times. And he does this, and he still doesn't know how Esau is going to respond. Esau could kill him. And that's what he thinks most likely in this moment. You see here, Jacob's repentance, we see vulnerability and humility, but we also see that he's very particular in his repentance. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, it, there's this chapter, and it's a great chapter on repentance. And in this chapter, it talks about that, the fact that we shouldn't be content with just general repentance, but we, would make, we should make an attempt to repent uh, of particular sins specifically. And that's what we see Jacob doing here. And we're going to get into this more in the next point, but the bowing and the giving of gifts is all connected to what he has done in the stilling of the birthright. It's very specific. Uh, it's very wholehearted. And that's often much different than our repentance, isn't it? Oftentimes, our repentance is half-hearted and vague. We say things like, well, I said I was sorry. Get over it. Or how many times do we have to talk about this? I told you I was sorry. Maybe you're the one with the problem. You ever said those things? I obviously have because I can recite those pretty easily. We all have half-hearted repentance. We don't see that, do we? With Jacob, he's all in. Jacob means business. And one of the things we learn here is that the path to reconciliation always travels through humility and vulnerability and being specific in the ways that you've hurt the other person. Do you have relationships in your life this morning that need repair? Do you have relationships maybe with a spouse or a child or a friend or a co-worker or maybe someone here in the church uh, that you need to go to and repair the relationship, go to in vulnerability and humility in the specific ways that you have hurt them? You see, walking with a limp involves moving towards someone with vulnerability and particular repentance in restoring the relationship, the damaged relationship that you have. Secondly, walking with a limp means that you are reconciling. So you're changing, and we see that obviously in Jacob, but it also means that you're reconciling. Jacob is a changed man, but is not the most beautiful person in the story, the one that shines brighter than anyone. Is it not Esau? Is this not the most beautiful picture of forgiveness and mercy in all of the Bible? Look at verse 4 again. He ran, embraced, 
fell on his neck, kissed him, and wept. I love the detail. I love the picture of this moment. Picture someone grabbing someone around the neck and just collapsing on that, falling on his neck. What a beautiful picture here. Notice the scripture, or notice the description. It's not a side hug. This is full-on bear hug here. I love the words ran, embraced, falling, kissed. And every commentator points this out, but we see one interaction like this, only one interaction in the rest of Scripture, and you know what it is? This sound familiar? Luke chapter 15. The famous parable by Jesus the prodigal son. Listen to it, 1520. He arose, ran, embraced, and kissed his lost son. The two scenes are so familiar that some have argued, again, we can't be sure, but some have argued that Jesus had this scene in mind when he told the parable. And if that's the case, and again, we don't know if it is for sure, but if that's the case, Esau is the father in the parable of the prodigal son. The one that runs with compassion and hugs and weeps over Jacob, the prodigal. And did you notice Jacob calls Esau throughout the story, my Lord. Did you notice what Esau called him? Verse 9. My brother. Think about this story. I mean, think about, put yourself in this story. Here is a man in Jacob that is responsible for everything that has gone wrong in your life. Everything. And you have a chance to get even. You have a chance to go after him. And Esau doesn't do it. He welcomes him home with tears as the prodigal son. Verse 10, for I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Very similar to Genesis 32, 20, when Jacob says, I've seen the face of God, and you delivered me. What is Jacob saying here? Jacob is saying, I was so close to God. I wrestled with God, and I knew that God could destroy me at any moment, but he didn't. He let me go, and he delivered me. And now, Jacob, I'm looking at you, and you have 400 men behind you, and you could break me. You could destroy me in this moment, but you didn't. You actually accepted me. And in accepting me, it was like seeing the face of God. Why? Because earthly forgiveness is always a picture of God's forgiveness of us. Verses 8 through 11. There's this back and forth, which is kind of funny. Jacob keeps trying to get Esau to take things. And Esau keeps saying, no, we're good. I've got enough. He finally takes it. But the point I want you to see is the reason why Jacob is so adamant is because he is trying to give Esau and make right some of the the blessing uh, that he has received. He's trying to give back to Esau. It's more than him just trying to be nice. 
He's acknowledging, I have stolen the blessing, and now I'm trying to return it to you. In other words, he's trying to make things right. His posture is more than just, I'm sorry. He definitely is that, but it's also, how can I make things right with you? And Derek Kidner, a commentator, says this is a classic meeting of reconciliation and a classic picture of a reconciled relationship. Jacob, think about the the order here. He experiences God, he encounters God and wrestles with God, and he looks up and God says, now that we're reconciled, it's time for you to go be reconciled to your brother Esau, the person that you have hurt the most in this world. To say it another way, your relationship with God is meant to change every other relationship in your life. Listen to John, 1 John chapter 4, 20 and 21. Listen to this. If another says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Do you hear the connection? Love God, love people. They're connected. You cannot separate the two. Matthew chapter 5 is even stronger. The Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says, if you're offering a gift at the altar, in other words, if you're worshiping and you remember that someone has something against you, leave it. In other words, leave worship. And go and be reconciled and then come back and worship and offer your gift. So powerful. Jesus is saying being reconciled to another person is more important then worship, that's how big a deal it is. And what you see in this passage and in Matthew chapter 5, it's an active thing. It involves a going. And that's the other thing I think that's hard for us because we don't like the going. We just say, God, we're going to keep this between us. And so we go and we say, God, forgive me for how I was angry with my spouse and my children. Uh, Please forgive me. Uh, And then we want to move on. We want to keep things between us and God. And of course, we need to confess our sin to God. But reconciliation is face-to-face. It's active. Uh, It's not a text message. It's a face-to-face confession and trying to make things right. Now, of course, you know, because maybe you've experienced some of these relationships, but there are some things that will only be reconciled and repaired in heaven. And of course, all of our attempts at reconciling, boy, I wish they would end like this, but we know that they all don't end like this story with Esau and Jacob. And that's the hard part, isn't it? The hard part is going, and we don't know how it's going to end and if it's going to go well. And yes, there are no guarantees that it will go well or like this story, but that's not our concern. We're not responsible for the other person's response. What are we responsible for? We're responsible to go and to attempt and show vulnerability and humility and be specific and try to make things right with the other person. And so who do you need to be reconciled with this morning? 
Is there someone in your life that has moved towards you, like Jacob, but yet you're still holding on to a grudge? Or you're still bitter, or you're still giving them the cold shoulder for something that's happened in the past. You see, this story, friends, gives us hope that real reconciliation is possible in deeply broken, deeply painful, bitter relationships. There is hope, and this story gives us hope. It gives us hope that God is at work. Think about God was at work in Esau in a big way, and he was also at work in Jacob in a big way, and they were reconciled, and God through his power did this in the midst of deep pain and betrayal. Where do you need to lay your weapons down and forgive and attempt to be reconciled? It is so important that Jesus says that you should get up from this service right now and go find that person and say, please forgive me. I am so sorry for the ways I've hurt you and be reconciled. That's how big it is. Lastly, person who's walking with the limps, reconciling, they're changing, but lastly, still struggling. Don't you wish the story could end with them weeping and embracing, and they would go and live happily ever after with their families? That's not what we see, unfortunately. But I actually think this is helpful because it's reality. Genesis chapter 32, Jim Boyce brings this out. Remember, God changes Jacob's name to Israel. And if you remember, when he changes Abraham, Abram's name to Abraham, it's Abraham for the rest of Scripture. That's not the case with Jacob. Did you know that Moses, the narrator for the rest of the book, goes back and forth between calling him Jacob in Israel, he actually calls him Jacob 45 times. So more often, he's Jacob. 23 times he calls him Israel. What's the point? The twister still needs to be untwisted. The twister has been profoundly changed, and we've seen that very clearly. But at the same time, he's still a work in progress. And we see that, and let me look at this briefly. Look at verses 12 and following, and I'll show you what I mean. Esau basically says, hey, let's go build houses together and reunite. Come follow me. I'll even, look at verse 15, I'll come send people and help your family. But look at what Esau does in 13 and 14. Or Jacob, he essentially says, hey, brother, I'm right behind you. But look at verses 16 and 17. It's very clear. Esau returned to Seir, but Jacob journeyed the complete opposite direction to Succoth, and he settled there and built a home and shelters for his livestock. And so here's the scene. Esau and his family go over the hill after he had just told them, hey, I'm right behind you. And Jacob and his family turn and go the complete opposite direction. Now, Jacob's not being sincere. And if we paint this in the worst possible light, he's at it again. His deceitful ways. And did you know this is the last time he would see his brother 
until Isaac, their father's funeral. We also see, though, that he's not following God. Remember, God had fulfilled his promises to Jacob in Be- uh, that he made to him in Bethel in chapter 28. Jacob is safely in the promised land. Jacob has abundance and provision. And so what we expect is, okay, God's fulfilled his promises and vows. Now, Jacob, it's your turn to fulfill your vows and go like you said you would and worship at Bethel. But instead, verse 18, he stops and sucketh. Verse 18, he makes his way a little bit further uh, to Shechem, uh, which is closer to Bethel, but it's still not there. Here's the point. He's half-hearted. It's partial obedience. Verse 20, we see him do something good, so he's back. He built the altar in the wrong place, but at least he gives it the right name. It's deeply personal because this was Jacob's way, and this was a big deal, of saying, my father Isaac's God is now my God. And so he actually keeps part of the vow of saying the God of Israel would be his God. The point that I want you to see in the back and forth is that Jacob is a mixed bag. You know who else is a mixed bag? I am. And if you're honest, you are. And that's why I love this series on Jacob so much. Perhaps more than any person in the Bible, Jacob gives us the best picture of the Christian life. And this, he is a gift to us because he's in the Bible. And he doesn't play a small role. And some of you have said this to me. This is a patriarch, a major person in the Bible. And his life is a roller coaster. And we are just like Jacob, aren't we? We come to faith, we meet God, he slowly starts to untwist us and straighten out out our lives, and we see here that that actually takes a lifetime. You see, the point of Jacob's life is not how attractive he is spiritually. The point is how faithful his God is in his life and accomplishing his purposes. Jacob's life is two steps forward, uh, one step back. It's, it's this stop and start. And I love David Pallison when he's talking about growth. Listen to this. The pattern of our life in growth is like a yo-yo in the hands of a man that's walking up a flight of stairs. And I love that image because it's right. The trajectory of our life, if you're a Christian, is upward, but it's up and down like a yo-yo. That's Jacob. That's us. And people who walk with a limp know that they're a mixed bag. And it's at this point that we look at Jacob's life, and it's at this point you might come in and say, well, what Jacob needs is more law. Jacob needs someone to come in and be the heavy and drop the hammer and straighten him out. To be clear, God uses discipline. He does use discipline to change our lives. But you know what Jacob needs? Jacob needs the same thing we need. Jacob needs more Jesus. He needs more Jesus. Why more Jesus? Because, friends, it's only Jesus, the beauty of Jesus. It's only that that will suffocate and starve the sin in our lives. It's only when the Holy Spirit fills us up. 
and makes Jesus more beautiful to us than everything else that we will say, yes, Jesus, and no to sin. You see, like Jacob, our walk with Jesus is like a yo-yo. We fall in, think about Jacob falling back into the deception. We fall back in, don't we, to the same things we've struggled with our entire life. We blow it, we fail, we sin against Jesus in big ways. We shake our fist at God and we start to repent and we start rehearsing I'm, my, our, uh, I'm sorry speech as we go back to Jesus and finally we get up the courage to go and we're expecting cold shoulder we expecting tapping foot and crossed arms and never a kiss. And friends, the thing, and here's what I want you to see, the thing that will change your life, the thing that will melt your heart is when you see in that moment Jesus, the true elder brother, waiting for you, weeping for you, embracing you, and welcoming and running to you and welcoming you home. The gospel is such good news that while we were sinners, while we were enemies with God, you know what God did? He sent His Son, Jesus, to give us peace with God, to live the life that we couldn't live, to die the death that we deserve so that we might be reconciled with our Father. Jesus His obedience is never half-hearted. It was never half-hearted. It was always perfect. Jesus never needed to repent. And so his perfection actually covers, think about this, even our half-heartedness. Isn't that good news? That his perfection covers even our half-hearted and failure to repent properly. You stand before God, and this is the gospel, thanks And praise be to God, not on your own obedience, but on His. Jesus is better than you think. And one of the major keys to your growth spiritually is when you start to believe that. When you are so captivated with the goodness of Jesus that everything else starts to fade away in comparison to Him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Jesus so that we could be reconciled to you. And I pray this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would come, that you would fill us with courage because there are people in our lives that we need to be reconciled with. Give us courage to move towards them. And I ask that you would heal and repair those relationships. Lord, you can do it because you did it here, and we pray that you would do it again. Repair and redeem our broken relationships that we have in our lives. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.